I think most people in most organizations associate strategy with planning. And those two words are then married to each other in, in a lot of people's minds, right? In other words, we have to do strategic planning. Do you have a strategy or do you just have a plan? Do you even know the difference? Planning is important, obviously. You need to do planning. But I don't think we should confuse planning with strategy. Welcome to Season 3 of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the podcast where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty and global experts on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. If you're investing in a company, you may not want to hear that the founder is a gambler. You'd probably be even more worried if you found out that they were making big bets, ones that risk the future of the company. But when it comes to strategy, that might be the most responsible thing to do. In fact, the bets you make on strategy can be transformative to your products, your clients, even your culture. And that's exactly what happened with our guest today. What does strategy mean to you, the term? It meant a plan to me 10 years back. Today, it means making choices. I'm Abhishek Rungta, founder and CEO of IndusNet Technologies. Now rebranded as INT, right? That's right, yeah. I started this business in 1997 when I was in college. I call IndusNet a 25-year-old startup. Paint the picture for me. What did INT look like 10 years ago? So 10 years back, INT was a company who was everything for everyone. So for us, what mattered was anyone who wants to come and give us a business to develop a mobile app or to develop a web application, and we would gladly go ahead and do it for them. And where were most of your customers? Oh, they were all over the world. (laughs) So we were having customers in North America, the entire Europe, Australia, Southeast Asia, even India. We didn't have any focus. So for us, anyone who can send an email uh, was a customer. Did you have a formal strategy? Like if I asked you, Abhishek, show me your strategy, did you have something written down? Uh, No. Uh, So it was like every now and then, let's say every quarter, I would scribble down something on a piece of paper, just try to see where I am and what I want to do next. Most of the time, it was not well thought out. And to be honest, most of the time, it was retrofit. Uh, So I would do something. If it works, then I would actually uh, start thinking what worked here. Why did I choose this? Uh, So a lot of these decisions were by gut feeling, not by real research or uh, discussion within the organization or even within my own mind, to be honest. It may seem surprising that INT could run for years without a formal strategy. But Abhishek isn't alone. Plenty of founders don't have a defined strategy, or they think they do, but what they have isn't really a strategy at all. So we brought in someone who can set the record straight. Hi, my name is Jesper Sorensen. I'm a professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And what do you teach at Stanford? Uh, Here at Stanford, I teach courses in strategy. Jesper is also co-author of the excellent book, Making Great Strategy, and the faculty director of the Stanford Seed Program. There's really no one I'd rather talk to on this subject. So my first question to you is, what is a strategy and what isn't it? So that's a great question. I mean, strategy is one of these terms that, is widely abused, right, and used in to refer to any number of things. And so, you know, when I think about what a strategy is, I think it's the logic of success for the organization. Like, how are we going to get the resources that we need in order to accomplish what it is we want to accomplish? 
You know, what we're trying to articulate in the book is a view of strategy that a strategy is an argument, right? It's a, we call it a strategy argument. And that uh, when you do strategy, what you're doing is you're constructing this theory, right, about how causes lead to consequences. What's important here is the logic, not the logistics. Jesper says too many companies skip straight to details without doing the hard work of imagining how your company succeeds in an uncertain future. I think most people in most organizations associate strategy with planning. And those two words are then married to each other in, in a lot of people's minds, right? In other words, we have to do strategic planning. Planning is important, obviously. You need to do planning. But I don't think we should confuse planning with strategy. And Roger Martin, who's a writer, has talked about this as well. You know, we've like to focus on planning in organizations because planning is all about the things that we can control. But what Martin says, which I think is exactly right, is that strategy is really mostly about the things that you can't control. So it's about what are customers going to want? What are your competitors going to do? What is the regulator going to do? What are your suppliers going to do? Like those are all things that you don't have any control over per se. Like you can influence them, you can shape them, but it's not like you can sit and you can command them to do things the way you can in an organization usually. So strategy is about managing all this uncertainty. Planning feels so much safer than strategy, which is why many leaders fill their time with operations and micromanaging. I was a problem solver and I like to get deep into problems and find innovative solutions and give it to my team. So I used to absolutely love doing that. And that is what I used to do day in and day out. So I would get into meetings back to back entire day and, you know, uh, listen to problems, listen to uh, check out data and give feedback and give inputs. In fact, so much of that that I didn't have time to even check if people have worked on those inputs or not. I totally know that feeling, right? <laughs> I sometimes go there myself and you like go into the meeting like, here's my here's my brilliant thought. Let's move on this onward next meeting, right? It's a good feeling, right? It's easy, quick satisfaction. But to grow your business, you need a strategy. Abhishek found this out the hard way. What were the problems that you saw with your business and what sort of triggered the idea that maybe you need to rethink your business model? So first thing is that uh, between 2008 and 2012, I had lots of companies which came out of Industnet. So it was very easy for someone to just move out of the company, take some clients and employees along with them and start a new company. And, you know, we would kind of keep suffering the blow one after another. You were not spinning these off. These were literally people walking away from you and taking some of your customers with them. Yes, absolutely. Not only customers, but also some of the key employees. As I said, that the immediate tendency of anyone at that point of time would be to blame the other person. Would say, you know, uh, how ungrateful. And I did the same. So I was no different. But I, I, over a period of time, I realized that it is not about uh, someone just being ungrateful. It is being about uh, the company does not have a concrete strategy. So Abhishek needed a strategy. But as a small business, he faced some common challenges. Most small and medium-sized businesses are in head-to-head -head competition. After speaking with Abhishek, I decided to call Jesper back to get his thoughts on the specific challenges that smaller companies face in developing a growth strategy. The connection wasn't great, but the insights were. So when you're a small or medium-sized company, right, you have this problem oftentimes that you have very powerful suppliers and you have very powerful buyers, one or the other or both in the worst-case scenario. And there's usually not 
anything that you can do about it, right? Because those problems are usually about the supplier or the buyer being really big and you're really small and they have lots of alternatives to you and you don't have any alternatives to them. Oftentimes what they can do something about is competition, right? And they have lots of rivalry and they got to figure out how do I win against competition? This really describes INT's situation. Competition is a very big reality in our industry because it's not a blue ocean business. It's a red ocean business. There are uh, uh, hundreds of IT companies, uh, if not thousands, who are in the fray to get a business. So there's basically two different ways in which you can do that. You can do that by saying, okay, look, uh, the customer's going to look at those chips on the shelf and they're not really going to care which one they choose because it's all the same to them. But the way I'm going to win is that I'm going to have a lower cost of producing and delivering those chips to the store than my rival is. And that's what we would call a low-cost strategy, right? So the customer benefit is the same, right? They're indifferent between the different products, but I incur a lower cost, and so therefore I have a higher potential margin. If Abhishek even had a strategy 10 years ago, this was it. Back then, INT was a low-cost provider, so our moat was, uh, can you offer at the lowest possible price? But low-cost strategies have their downsides. Uh, we realized that we were serving the companies uh, for whom it does not matter what size and uh, what capability does the other company has. For them, the only thing that matters was that the, can the other company offer them a cheap service? So you didn't have product differentiation. You're trying to be the lowest-cost provider. And it turns out that anybody can be a low-cost provider. Yes. So your own staff saw opportunities. Well, well, if Abhishek can do this with INT, I can do this with my own company because it's not that hard. And the customer doesn't actually care who's doing this in the back end as long as they're delivering you know, a working product at a low price. I am offering the same thing that a 20-people company can offer. Though we were already 300 people in the company, and this means that the client has no reason to pay our overheads and to work with us uh, in that scenario. And I think the other thing I would say there is your own team members probably didn't see a really big future in that business model. Yeah, of course. So we were always considered like a training ground for everybody. Though I don't mind people uh, think of Indusnet as a great learning organization, but definitely uh, it was not supposed to be considered as a training ground for the future career growth. So the, the whole point here was that I started looking inward that what am I doing wrong? And I figured out that I am working without a major differentiator. I am working without a very well-defined culture in the company. Strategy affects everybody in your organization. If your people don't see a compelling vision, why would they stay? And if your product isn't differentiated, anybody can replicate it. And you might find, as Abhishek did, that you're training people for the street. The other strategy that you can pursue is what we call a perceived quality strategy, okay? And so that means that when they look at all those chips on the shelf, their eyes are drawn to yours and they're like, ooh, that's the chip that I want because I think it tastes better than all the other chips. And I think there's a key word there. It's the perception. Not your perception, but your customer's perception. Exactly. So you might think that your chips are much better than your rivals. And you might even be right. Like, you, they might taste better to you, okay? But your customer has to think that they taste better. INT was struggling with a low-cost approach. Abhishek realized to attain his ambitions, they needed to change. Okay, so you have this epiphany. You look inward you realize that something has to change. What's next in your strategy journey? So for us, it was a challenge that we wanted to move up the value chain. 
by that time, I understood that, of course, we are at the bottom of the value chain in a way. We wanted to move up. Uh, so I started thinking that, you know, uh, instead of serving the smaller businesses uh, who really don't care much about the size of business on the other side of the table, should we go and look at the larger businesses? So we started uh, looking at how can we go out and sell to larger businesses. So while doing that, I tried in the US first. We got some clients, but uh, we were getting the not so critical portions of their business. And that is uh, another thing that we realized that us working on things that do not matter to the business as much as we want is a big problem. Because it means that there won't be a sticky client. Absolutely, because this means that uh, for them, this is just a, maybe a small experiment or they may not continue with this over a period of time. So you do all this work to find these American companies. They give you some tiny slice of their business that they're not risking. They're not making a big bet on you, which means they can drop you tomorrow. So your customer acquisition cost is going high, but your repeatable sales and, and your predictable sales still aren't there. That's right. INT still wasn't getting anywhere, even as they reached larger customers overseas. And that's because their strategies didn't account for how those customers would behave. They didn't account for lower cost entrance into their market or how larger clients would view their partnership. Those things weren't up to Abhishek, but they still radically affected his business. So how do you strategize around those things that are beyond your control? That's why you have to think about strategy really is about an argument because an argument is all about making assumptions, right? Like assumptions about how the uncertainty is going to resolve itself so that you're going to be able to accomplish your goals. So once you have clarity about like, okay, I'm going to assume that these are the things that are going to happen if I do the following things, then you say, okay, now I need to plan consistent with that set of assumptions, right? So I said, okay, if I build a really big manufacturing facility and invest in, you know, that kind of scale, I think that the following good things will happen to my cost structure, to my market share, to all these other kinds of things. Great. Now you have to plan to make that happen. Is there anything a leader can do to make their strategy more future-proof today? The concept future-proof is funny because you, the challenge, of course, is you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what the future is going to hold. So I think the way you make a strategy more future-proof in that sense is to be as clear as possible with yourself about what assumptions you are making and be vigilant about changes in the truth of those assumptions. And second, to be aware of the fact that you're probably making a set of implicit assumptions that you're not aware of and pay attention, right, to, to be able to discover what those are. Assumptions are key to strategy. They're essentially bets, educated guesses about what the future holds. And you're already making them. You just might not know it. I think one of the pieces of that that really came out to me is by forcing people to give a logical and coherent argument for why they believe this course of action will lead to that outcome is it makes implicit, unstated assumptions explicit, right? And then you can have a debate about whether the logic holds, whether the assumptions themselves are actually strong or weak or biased. The actual quote in your book is, implicit assumptions are most dangerous for strategic decisions, where the implicit premise will often be non-obvious but controversial. The reason we emphasize trying to be very clear with yourself about what you're assuming is that you want to know what bets you're making. And the greater the bet, the greater the potential reward. 
One of the things I really found fascinating in the book is that a forward-looking strategy that only has safe assumptions is not actually going to get you anywhere, right? You have to be willing to take some bets. That I found that really interesting, that if your strategy is predicated on safe and comfortable assumptions, it's probably not going to be a very earth-shattering strategy. It's going to be an incremental strategy. After several false starts, Abhishek constructed a more complete strategic argument, one based on clear assumptions. Can you describe for me what are the big bets you're making in this trade? What has to be true for your strategy to succeed? A few things that are the foundation of our strategy is, number one is uh, clients want things to be delivered faster, not cheaper. Sorry, say more about that. So they're more interested in getting stuff fast rather than cheap. So that was your big aha moment. What did that mean on your side in terms of investment in the company and skills, technology? Yeah, so we we started building what we call code accelerators. Uh, now, just to decipher it for you, these are a set of codes that we keep ready. This means they are our building blocks, a lot of things which are already built in. And then we can keep putting it together like Lego blocks to build any software. This enables us to reduce our time to develop and uh, cost to develop by almost 35 to 40%. Uh, so this helped us in moving faster. Notice here how the assumption drives the action. The bet that Abhishek made that his target customers would value speed over price came first. The code accelerators were a means of achieving that strategy. The second thesis that we have is that uh, regulated businesses will continue to invest in their applications and they have to continue to invest in the maintenance of those applications because they are regulated and they have to spend and continue to spend on not only new applications and new changes, but also the older applications and older uh, systems because as regulation changes, they have to adapt to the regulation. So if you see all the three industries we chose are highly regulated industries, insurance, banking and pharmaceutical businesses or life sciences. So they become stickier customers because the regulatory risk and potential cost to find a new provider to drop Indusnet and find somebody else, it's higher for them as well. Absolutely. And instead of just high, it's more risky. I think they are all risk-averse businesses. They don't want to risk moving to just another provider or just bring someone else to manage the system that has been built ground up by some other company. This approach doesn't just affect your products, it can help define your organizational structure. And we have also designed our organization in a way which is verticalized. This means a complete vertical in organization just focuses on insurance, another vertical focuses on banking, and the third vertical focuses on life sciences. Uh, that is how we have also designed the org. Sometimes, strategy requires that you close certain doors so you can focus on your big bets with less distraction. So... Prior to this strategic focus in these verticals and your restructuring, you were taking whatever business showed up. So when you made this shift, you had to make some choices, right? You had to give up a bunch of business, right? Oh, yeah, many. Obviously, our prices went up. So some businesses uh, themselves dropped out who were very price conscious. Abhishek's strategic assumptions have led to investments in areas he never anticipated. So the last but not the least is that the world will keep changing very, very fast. And if we have to stay afloat, uh, we have to stay at the cutting edge of the business. And for that, even if we are an IT service company, we need to have a very strong R&D center, which we never had before. So we created an R&D center inside the company, uh, which basically continues to churn out innovation on cutting edge technology, which is not yet adopted by companies. 
So this also gives companies a comfort that Indusnet would always be at the cutting edge. They can bring the most important and most useful innovations on the table, and that will help us. So Abhishek, these are really dramatic changes you're describing. I mean, you're going from the low-cost service provider, taking whatever business you can find, whatever comes across the transom, to someone who's investing in your own technology stack, in your own IP, your building blocks, your accelerator process, and now your R&D center. I mean, that is a real maturity of the company. I, I like how you describe it as a 25-year startup because I see like it's a complete, really a different company from even 10 years ago. What happens if your assumptions are wrong? Does the business just collapse? Well, hopefully not, because you shouldn't be surprised. You're keeping an eye on your assumptions and constantly testing if they're true. I call it changing uh, plane engines at 30,000 feet, and that is what I have been doing. So it has been a very interesting adventure, and I think most of the learning in the initial days uh, of uh, thinking and making this change was uh, you know, by reflecting and by uh, going through the different experiences. And putting one thing together is that where am I wrong? Where am I wrong? What could I have done better? And what can I do better now? So the most important assumptions to test first, you think about it in, in two dimensions. Any given assumption you can assess along two dimensions. So one dimension is how uncertain are you about it? Okay, there are certain assumptions that I'm going to make as I go about my daily life that I don't really worry about. I don't worry about whether the sun is going to rise tomorrow. And so I kind of build my strategy around that assumption. So that's the uncertainty dimension, right? On the other hand, I don't know, for example, on the uncertainty dimension, what's the demand for electric vehicles going to look like in 2035, right? I have a lot more uncertainty around that. The second dimension, how consequential is this assumption to your success? So you could say, well, maybe I should just, all the assumptions that I should focus on are the ones that I'm really uncertain about. But some of the assumptions don't matter so much. In any given argument, there are typically kind of some nodes in the argument, so some kind of node in a network kind of sense, where if, if that assumption fails, everything else falls apart, right? Like it's consequential in the language of our, our book because it's really important to the logic of the strategy and it's highly uncertain, right? And the combination of those two things means that that's the thing you really got to pay attention to. Abhishek uses a similar formula to examine his assumptions. So for example, we know what are the outcomes which we are very confident about because they are just extrapolation of what we have started doing and which has started giving results. And there are certain experiments which we have to experiment for which we cannot extrapolate because they are zero or one. Give me an example. We want to sell to small banks in uh, United States of America and Canada. And uh, we have not done that till now. And uh, we have to get in that market. So this is a zero or one. I'm not saying we will be zero, but this one may take a longer time than expected. So what I have done is that I have divided the responsibility at a mental level. I am more involved in zero to one, which are the high risk areas where you need to actually figure out multiple ways and then choose one way to get to that one. And anything which is 1 to 10 or 1 to 100, I have given the full decision-making to my team. They are taking all the decisions and they are deciding how to move forward. I love that. I love the way you describe that because, you know, one of the other things I've, I think about with strategy is that a good strategy has to make some bets about a future which is not really knowable. 
if a strategy is just let's do more of this and more of that, it's not, I mean, you might succeed, but it's not a strategy that's going to fundamentally change your organization and lead to 100x of anything, right? It's just an incremental plan. So I love the I love the idea you've put across here, which is that there are some big bets you're making that are unknowable, and those are the ones you worry about. And then there's the sort of incremental growth of businesses that you're confident in, and those are the ones where the main risk is execution. Abhishek had examined his assumptions. He'd made informed and intentional bets. He finally had a strategy. But he also had a problem. His company wasn't built to implement this strategy. To achieve success, Abhishek had to change how things were done, and that started with him. If you're going to have a strategy that makes a few big bets, you're risking the business. You can't do that alone. How did you get there? I had a great team, actually, a great team of people who can operate well, who can execute well. But the challenge was that I was the only one who was taking all the decisions. That was creating a lot of bottleneck. And not only bottleneck, but it also tires you out a lot. And you don't get much time to think through, uh, not about just today, but also about tomorrow. And it took serious time myself because it means that I'm changing my leadership style from being a problem solver, from being a micromanager to someone who is basically communicating the vision and let the team run the show. And for that, of course, you need very different kind of people whom I have never recruited in past. Your mindset was, I want to find great operators who can execute what I tell them to execute on. They're going to do a great job. They're going to be reliable. I don't want to oversimplify it, but they're kind of like worker bees, right? You give them a task, off they go, they do it, they're reliable. You wanted, you needed somebody who was actually going to challenge you or contribute to the strategic vision. You are right, but we were more looking at people who have been there, done that. And over time, I realized that people who have been there, done that, may have a lot of experience. And at times, the big challenge with such uh, people is that they generally go back into their experience and they try to find solution for everything from that experience. And in the way the world is changing today, uh, that experience can be a big liability because they may bring an outdated solution to a new problem. So we then started looking at people who have a lot of different kinds of experience and who can actually think for themselves using first principle thinking. So we started looking out and we started interviewing. And that is where my uh, big realization came that uh, since I have not hired such people and have not interviewed such people at that scale in past, uh, this was itself a huge learning curve for me. Because the kind of attributes I was looking for was not necessarily suitable for such people to come and make an impact in the company. Uh, so we went through a process in which uh, we all kept observing all the people that were already inside the company to see how different people react and how different people behave. And from there, we identified two leaders from within the company who can be molded to become the senior management people, whom we felt that they can take their decisions on themselves and they will not necessarily fall back on me all the time. So the first thing that we did was to promote these two people in senior management. It's so interesting because it really is the fundamental nature of a human capital strategy is, does the team you have today, are they the right people to take the company where you want it to go? And you realize that actually they weren't, although they some of them might be there within your company, but they've never been given the opportunity to actually express their their other skills, right? They were You never asked them, you never gave them an opportunity to actually be a leader. And on the other hand, a company that's moving in a, in a fast-changing environment, you need people who's, who aren't anchored to the past. It's really a human capital strategy. 
organization change cannot happen without people change and people change cannot happen without a leader change i think the first i had to change myself uh, to a level where i said okay should i drive the business by activity or should i drive by culture and that is where i chose culture because culture is what will give us a long term competitive advantage because it will continue to uh, keep changing the tasks that we want to do and people will themselves discover so for example the whole building block concept that i'm talking about the accelerator we are talking about uh, this idea hasn't come from me i was not even involved in it uh, one of the two people which we promoted internally he came up with that idea that you know i want to create this framework because without creating this framework i cannot break the silos in the company so all these ideas are coming from the same leaders that we have promoted and we have put on the pedestal and i think they are living up to that strategy is not executed in a vacuum for a meaningful pivot you'll probably need to reevaluate your talent pool your organizational design even your culture because what got you here isn't necessarily what will get you there. The changes at INT go beyond surface level strategy and as a result they're separating from the pack. So the way I look at it is not neither the cost strategy nor the sales strategy. The way I look at it is that what can I do which my competition will find it extremely difficult to replicate. And uh, when I look at that I find three major elements which I find that my competition will find it extremely difficult to replicate. one is speed as a company uh, where we have a delegated decision making to the last man in the organization and where we can move fast and as an organization as i said we have divided the verticals in smaller chunks this means every division can take their own decisions so the organization looks big but each division is small and agile so they can move very fast the second thing is that the larger organizations cannot deliver high level of flexibility in their modes of engagement the flexibility is the second thing so we call ourselves uh, fast flexible and the last one is future focused so for example when we talk about blockchain many large organizations want to do it but they are not proposing or they are not taking the risk of bringing blockchain capabilities to the clients right now but we have said okay this is the risk we are ready to take we will take the most cutting edge technology and we will start consulting and do proof of concepts with the client and where it is applicable and it works we will continue to scale it with our clients What I find so fascinating about your answer is I thought you were going to say that it's your technology stack and your accelerator program and you know you're building your lego blocks of code but actually what you said was it's your organization and culture that's your key differentiator because it's fine to have all those things but if your product teams aren't don't have delegated authority to go out and make decisions to innovate if they don't know how to talk to a client and give them an answer on their own without checking back with abishek every time then you're not going to actually fulfill that key differentiator so it's actually more about the culture in the organization i mean the technology is important obviously you have you know brilliant young uh software engineers but What I heard was actually your organizational design and your culture are absolutely key to your product differentiation. All along we've been talking about let's focus on these verticals, let's build this technology, let's have R&D, but underneath all of this is let's operate as a different type of organization. And that's how we win. A meaningful strategy places bets on things you can't control, your clients, your competition, your future. These things aren't knowable and it may seem safer to avoid making such bets but you can have a point of view built on coherent explicit assumptions and you know which ones have to be true to succeed and you know how to test them I don't think there's any kind of pill you can take that will guarantee your success against all the changes that might happen in the future but what you can do is you can say okay 
when a change comes in, I can then think about, well, does this impact the logic of my strategy or not? And I think that's actually the other aspect of future proof that we maybe underestimate, which is I think a lot of companies spend too much time reacting to things that they don't need to react to because they hear all the hype about, oh, you know, crypto or oh, something else, right? And then it turns out, you know, six months later, nobody's talking about it anymore because they moved on to the next thing. And you just redirected your whole company to do this, right? It will take risks to grow your business, but you've already bet on yourself once because it's a risk to even start a business and you can do it again. In a world where many companies don't actually understand strategy, it can be a huge differentiator. A well-considered strategy can and should shape elements of your business, including your human capital, your organizational structure, and your culture. Those bets pay off. Just ask Abhishek. We have set the ground for massive growth. And if I also see the growth in the accounts that we got in last few years, they have actually grown a lot. Right. We have just been uh, you know, held back just because the churn that we have been managing, uh, because we were also letting go a lot of smaller businesses. But I think now that churn is over, the upside should be much bigger. So we should at least grow at 30-35% per annum minimum. The more you describe it, the more impressed I am with what a big pivot this is. Because you're talking about new products, new customer segment, and new markets geographically. You're betting the farm on these three big changes. That's why I said we are changing the engines at 30,000 feet. So, and hopefully we are changing it without losing altitude. <laughs> I want to thank Abhishek Rungta and Jesper Sorensen. As I said before, you can't just have one conversation with Jesper. So you'll be hearing more from him later this season. This has been Grit and Growth from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Erica Amawake Ajay and VN Virgin researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another episode.